0: Thanks, Hans. Well, good morning. Uh, Welcome to church. I'm Rowan, one of the pastors here, and it's great to gather together as we get to this next section, a long section, uh, in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. Um, As Jacob said earlier, we we love working through books of the Bible, hearing what God has to say to us, hearing what Matthew is trying to show us. So why don't we pray together that God would help us to understand His Word and Himself as we come to it, as we've just heard it read. Let's pray. Father God, we come here today with all sorts of things going on in our world and our lives and our minds. But we are very aware that it is you that controls the universe. It is you that is in control of all things. And so as we hear what you have to say to us today in your word, we ask that by your spirit and through your word, you would fix our eyes on the focus of your word and how we ought to live in response to it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, psychologists tell us... So one of the most important ideas to grasp in life and relationships is the need for compromise. It's the need to compromise in your relationships with others. The Webster's Dictionary defines compromise as this, uh, to come to agreement by mutual concession. That means we need to concede some things. We need to have some sort of compromise to get on, whether it's in marriage or union disputes or international affairs. We need to learn to listen to one another. You've all been in that conversation where someone refuses to compromise and how frustrating it is that they don't seem to understand one another and you're bashing heads against one another. Maybe that was you in the car on the way to church this morning with the loved ones in your car. I don't know. But compromise is so important. We need to learn to listen to each other. And that will mean that we'll get to a point where we need to concede some things, where we need to compromise and get on, so we can get on with and agree with others. Now, if you disagree with me on this... I can guarantee you one of us is going to need to change. Because otherwise, how do we have relationships, right? Unless we have compromise. And when it comes to the question of religion, so often it feels like compromise is missing. Have you ever felt that? It feels like people just hold on to certain views in a dogged way and never change. We don't really see people moving along with the times and people encourage us to think about how we need to see religion move on with the times, to update its views, just to have a bit of give and take with the world around us. Almost universally, compromise feels like the morally right thing to do, doesn't it? When someone refuses to compromise, we kind of stand back and go, oh, that's not good. That's not right. You're not a good person. You're acting in a moral way. But is it? Is compromise the morally right thing to do? I want to put it to you today that sometimes compromise is very much the morally wrong thing to do. I mean, imagine for a moment if Winston Churchill had gone to Hitler and said, look, Hitler, I know you want to wipe out all the Jews, but why don't you just give me three million? We'll go halves, meet you halfway, and we'll call it quits. Right? You go, no, we don't want to see that happen. That's horrible. That's a horrible compromise. Right, there are certain spheres where compromise is actually the morally wrong thing to do. Now, from a distance, Jesus looks like the kind of guy who'd be great at compromise, don't you think? He's not like these religious Pharisees. they were so legalistic. They were like black and white people. You know They took the fun out of fundamentalism. That's what they did. That's how hardcore they were. They just they were so dogged. Listen to what happens in Matthew 12 verse 1 at that time jesus passed through the grain fields on the sabbath his disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain when the pharisees saw this they said to him see your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the sabbath no compromise no leniency all law no love and you kind of stand back and go oh those guys ah don't really like them now pharisees generally get a bad rap in the new testament but they were trying to be good guys they took God's word and they wanted to really understand it and live it out. And so they made, made it kind of clearer than it actually was. They constructed over 600 rules of things you shouldn't do and things you should do in order to do what they thought the Bible was saying. And more than 20 of those 600 rules were about how to act on the Sabbath to make sure that they, they, they kept it free and that, that it was special. And, and so you couldn't work, you couldn't spit because it would turn over dirt and all these kind of crazy rules that were there. But Jesus here... He doesn't tell them they just need to compromise a little on their rules. He shows them they've got something fundamentally wrong about the way they're understanding God and His Word and the Sabbath. See, the main purpose of this Sabbath was a day to stop and remember the kindness of God, the rest God gave them. His rescue of His people out of Egypt and all that God had done throughout history. The, The idea of Sabbath wasn't rules to keep. It was for the good of humanity to reflect on the goodness of God. But you notice here, Jesus doesn't say, oh, it's okay, you can just fudge the law a little bit. He doesn't come in and just be like, oh, we just need a bit of give and take, a bit of compromise here. He actually comes in to show them that they've got it wrong. He shows them what the law was there to do. Look at verse 3. He said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry? How He entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to do or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. Now, at first reading, you hear that and you go, it sounds like Jesus has gone all law booky. Like he's, he's, I'm going to up your rules with more rules and show you that you're wrong. Uh, Something kind of going on here that Jesus is trying to do this law (laughs) one-upmanship. But what he's actually saying is King David did it, which means I can do it. See, we read that and we go, David entered, and we hear this story of him, but we forget, this is the king. So the Pharisees are like, yes, he could do that. King David could do that because he was the king, and there was something that was more important going on, something special about the moment David did this, the the battle he was fighting. He was the greatest military king of Israel had ever seen, and and the Pharisees got this. But Jesus is saying, King David did it, so can I. So who does this guy Jesus think he is? That's what the Pharisees are thinking. Does he think he is better than David? Well, to get that answer, Jesus goes on in verse 5. Well, haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days, the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? Again here, he's saying that the priests have got something more important to do than to, to just experience the rest that God made for man but actually to present the the sacrifices of the people to God. On the Sabbath, the the whole sacrificial system, the temple, the priests, burning sacrifices, symboling mankind's rejection of God and us needing to be punished for what we have done and, and this animal then taking the death in our place for us, reminding humanity that sin deserves death, rejecting the God who gives life means we end up in death. That's what the sacrificial system was about. And this offering sacrifices at, at, at the temple, that the place where God met with his people, was so important for Israel because it was the basis of their relationship with God. It was the only way they could come to God. was through obeying what he had said about these sacrifices, coming to recognize that God's wrath needed to be poured out on someone else other than them, for them to be in right relationship with him. This wasn't ceremony for ceremony's sake. Israel knew that they'd rejected God. That they deserve death and the, the only way god had told them that this could be dealt with was by the presenting of a sacrifice so the priest did at the temple was so important so important but then listen to what jesus says verse 6 i tell you something greater than the temple is here <laughs> see you come into this section and you think it's all about what we do on Saturdays, the Sabbath or the sun, or Sundays now, the, the kind of changed as Christians to, uh, with the resurrection of Jesus. We think it's all about, oh, should we obey the Sabbath or not? But it's not about that at all. The whole section, Jesus is showing you something about himself. If you want a title for it, it's this, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. He's doing this work and Matthew's pulling it together in this order to show us why Jesus did these things. Jesus is greater than David's military battles. His work is greater than that of the priests. He is greater than the temple himself, the place they met with God. That is what Jesus is saying. That is why the Pharisees are so angry. They understand it. They understand what he is saying, that he is greater. But they just miss who he is. This is no... Let's just compromise on a few details and move forward about the Sabbath. This is, have you seen who Jesus really is? A number of years ago, before Auckland EV started, um, I was out at a dinner with some other church planters in in the church planting kind of network I was assessed by before we we planted Auckland EV. And we're at a dinner and kind of chatting with other planters about their plans and kind of sharing stories. It was a really helpful dinner to be encouraging one another. And there was an older guy at the table who sat opposite me. Uh, he didn't seem to be involved in any particular church. As I chatted to him a bit, he, he hadn't been to theological college. Um, I, I asked him a few questions, but he kind of just kept asking me questions about what we were doing and what, what we were thinking about. He was, he was a lovely guy, but I, I was trying to work him out and I just, I just couldn't get it. And I kind of started to feel like this, oh, it's a bit of a waste of my time. I started to feel like, why am I talking to this guy? I want to meet with these other church planters that are here and chat about what they're doing. That's going to be most helpful for the kingdom. And I felt like this conversation was, was totally a sidetrack. Uh, but then I did the polite thing that you do. And after about kind of 20 or 30 minutes of him asking me questions, I went, oh, so, uh, so what do you do? And he said, oh, I used to be involved in some business things. But, um, but now I, I kind of I run an organization that funds church plants. And I'm like... Whoa, hang on a minute. And then I remembered his name. He told me what his name was. And I remember this was the organization we just put an application in to give us $120,000. And he ran it. And I'm sitting there going, this guy's not relevant to me. I totally misunderstood the moment. Now, eventually, uh, they did say yes. And they they gave us over three years, $120,000 as a church to be able to start in the early days. But here I was, I nearly blew him off because he wasn't what I was expecting or what I thought I needed. He didn't fit the mold of... Who I, would be, who I thought would be the most useful for me. The Pharisees here, they've, they've totally missed who's staring them in the eyes. Jesus does all this, all the things that happen in the section of, of Matthew 12, not to make a point about the Sabbath, but to show us who he is. Look at verse 8. For the Son of Man, which is Jesus' name for himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. If you remember back to last week, as we looked at Matthew 11, we saw Jesus finish that whole section with these words in 11.28. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He said, come to me and I will give you rest. These aren't unrelated stories. Matthew's pulled them together here in this order to show us Jesus offers rest. But the Pharisees, they care about rest in the form of the Sabbath by keeping the law. The same word for rest is the same word used in Leviticus for the Sabbath. And what Jesus is saying is, he is the one who offers rest. Rest comes from him. The Pharisees think it's some law to obey, but they miss. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. It came from him. It is from him. It is for him. Jesus is claiming to be God. When you come to Jesus, there is no compromise, but not because he's unwilling, not because he's hard hearted, but because he's right. Because he is God, because he is the one who is in control of the universe. And recognizing who he is changes how we think about him. But Matthew wants to show us something else about Jesus in these stories he's collected. Have a look at verse 9. Moving on from there, Jesus entered their synagogue. He saw a man who had a shriveled hand and in order to accuse him, they asked, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You're like these guys. You're still going on about the Sabbath. Have you not realized who's standing in front of you? Have you not seen what's going on? Now, a bit of background here is going to be important. See, it'd be very unusual for someone with a shriveled, a dry and withered hand is what the original says, someone who needs help to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Usually these people were seen as unclean in some way. The Pharisees and the kids talk did a great job of going, Ugh, get away from me. That's kind of the view that happened. It was seen as ceremonially unclean. It would be very rare for someone like that to be allowed in. How did he get in? Who let him in? The answer is the Pharisees, because it's a setup. They know it's the Sabbath. They want to trap Jesus. They want to show that he doesn't keep their little law-keeping minds and he doesn't do what he ought to do. They want him to compromise, to say, you win, I lose. I'm not really who I say I am. But watch what happens in verse 11. Jesus replied to them, who among you, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. So it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. I mean, this is the reality. If, you, if, if your sheep fell into a pit, you, you're free to get it out. You want to save your sheep because of the laws that they'd set up, they, they matter because they care about their possessions and they care about the sheep. And Jesus looks at them and says, how much more important is this human being than the sheep? So he heals the man. The man they had no compassion for. The man they wanted to use as a point, a decoy, who they didn't value at all, who they value as even worse than their sheep, Jesus looks at him and heals him. You see a window into Jesus' heart here, don't you? His compassion, his love for the broken. Jesus treats him as a human. He treats him as someone that he loves. He gives him rest from his sickness. And rather than standing back and saying, wow, you are amazing, Jesus. It infuriates the Pharisees because he won't succumb to their religiosity. To their rules. Friends, be aware of how powerful our internal rules and regulations are. How strongly the way that we think we ought to do things that we set up kind of drives us because it can pull us away from recognizing the mercy, the goodness, the compassion, the love of God. See, one of the easiest ways of counterfeiting real, vital Christianity is to treat things on the periphery as if they were in the center to go through the motions, that the rituals and the rules can so easily swamp what is vital and real about a relationship with a true and living God, about seeing who He is and what He's done. Let me ask you today, where do you allow things on the periphery to become the center? The things on the side that, yes, they're important, but we hold them so strongly Or we have our particular ways of doing it that will divide over them. Where do you let them become the center and forget who is really at the center? Because it's incredibly dangerous. Look at where the Pharisees ended up in verse 14. The Pharisees went out and plotted against Jesus. How they might kill him. The irony is they weren't happy for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath but they were happy to plot how to kill Jesus on the very same day. Do not underestimate how, through going, how going through the rules and, and, and the rituals can swamp what is real and vital and move Jesus to the side. Then Jesus withdraws, Matthew tells us, but not because he's afraid. It's not like... <gasps> They're going to kill me. I've got to run. That doesn't happen at all for Jesus. He, he's in control of this whole thing. He does it because of who he is. Look at verse 15. Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him. Did he think they would follow him? He knew they would follow him. And he healed them all. Like It's, it's not even an effort for him. Large crowds follow him. He withdraws from this, this um. This synagogue gathering where they're all there they're from the, the religious rules and regulations. People follow him to where he is and he shows who he really is. The one who breaks in the kingdom of God. We get a window into what he's like, his love for people. Bringing in this new kingdom, the restoration of humanity. Everyone who came to him was, was healed. That's incredible. But it's just a side note to point out to who he is. He looks at people and he loves them. But that's not all he's doing see what matthew wants us to understand what he wants us to see really clearly is that jesus did this for a reason jesus warned them look at verse 16 he warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet isaiah might be fulfilled see jesus did this so he might fulfill what the prophet isaiah said Verse 18, here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. Now, at first reading, it seems odd. Jesus is trying to show who he is, but then he's not shouting it from the streets. He's not arguing in public. He's not trying to get everyone to come and follow him right here and right now. Doesn't he want to make it clear who he is to the world? But Jesus sees his identity in line with what the scriptures say, in line with the plan he and his father had before time itself began. And that's what he does. He acts in line with the scriptures, that that he would be the one that Isaiah spoke of as the suffering servant. He would not make a big deal, not yet, not before he had led justice to victory. And I take it here, he's talking about the defeat of death. When justice was led to victory and sin itself has been extinguished as Jesus would lay down his life on the cross. When he would defeat death on the cross, then scream out from the world to the world as he rose from the dead that Jesus is risen and he will be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what he says in the book of Acts that this message must go from Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. No, at this point, it was not the time. And he saw himself in line with what the scriptures said. He saw himself as greater than David. Greater than the whole Old Testament priests. Greater than the temple greater than the effects of sin that produces sickness and death, that he himself could drive them out, that he was the solution to death and the one who provides rest that is easy and the burden that is light and lasts forever. Then look what he says in verse 21, quoting Isaiah, the nations will put their hope in his name. The nations will put their hope in his name. Now, this is a big kind of alert here. To the Bible reader, this is a what? The nations will put their hope in his name. See, way back in Genesis 12, God promised to Abraham that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. That God would make Abraham into a great nation called Israel. That his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And that God would bless them. That Israel will be the blessed nation. And that through Israel, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Jesus gets up here. And he says this, this this passage in Isaiah that talks about the nations putting their hope in Israel is fulfilled in me. When God promised Abraham to make him a great nation in Genesis 12, he wasn't talking about Israel as a nation, not generally, but about the true Israelite, the one true Israelite, Jesus. That through Jesus... All God's promises to Abraham would be fulfilled, and only in Jesus. That's where we find all of the Bible pointing forward to that it's in Jesus. That's exactly what Paul says in Galatians three sixteen. He says, "Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to Abraham's seed." He doesn't say seeds as though referring to many, but referring to one and to your seed, who is Christ. The whole section. It's not about compromise and getting on and finding a happy medium. It's all about Jesus and who he is and him displaying who he is with no compromises. So often I think we get caught up with so many things that are in the periphery of these passages. The miracles, we think maybe they're here for today. If we just tapped into the spirit more, we'd have more power to see the gospel go out. Or maybe we'd be able to cast out demons in some ways or we might be able to do amazing healing and then people would get it because that's what Jesus did. No, the whole section is about us recognizing who Jesus is, the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. They serve as pointers to the nature, the character and the identity of Jesus. That's the most important thing. But for the Pharisees, maybe they're twigging at this point that there's something going on with this guy that's maybe a bit more than a normal man. They won't recognize him for who he is, but they see some sort of spiritual power going on what they do rather than recognize that it might be god is they attribute it to a demon look at verse 22. then a demon possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to jesus he healed him so that the man could both speak and see all the crowds were astounded and said could this be the son of david so the crowds are recognizing but the son of David was the promised king, the one who would come in the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the line of David, who would set up his throne and rule forever. The crowds are going, is this him? Is this the promised king? But no. The Pharisees say, he does this stuff by Satan's power. He's satanic. That's what he is. He's doing this with some heebie-jeebie, widgie board stuff going on in the background. That's, that's what he's doing. And Jesus shows why they say that. It's quite telling of their hearts. Verse 28. He says, if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, in other words, if it's the Spirit of God that is seeing these demons driven out, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So they get that. They get that if he's doing this from God, that he is who he's claiming to be. That he is God the Son, that he's the one who's in control of the universe, the one who is bringing in the kingdom of God that will last forever. But they refuse the Spirit's testimony about Jesus. And that's where we see the greatest sin in the world. The greatest sin. Let's dwell in here for a moment. See, a lot of people come to these verses and and they kind of ask, what is the unforgivable sin? Is there something that I could do that is so bad that Jesus can't forgive it? Because here it talks about a sin that seems like it cannot be forgiven. But in other parts of the scriptures, we read that that our sin can be washed away as far as the east is from the west. The psalmist says our sins can be put away from us. In, in Jesus, there's forgiveness. So the scriptures talk about the reality that there's nothing Jesus can't forgive, except one thing. Rejecting that Jesus is God, the son. Rejecting Jesus. You see, if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting forgiveness. You, you can't be forgiven. See, imagine for a moment, someone came up with this wonder drug, and it killed, it got rid of all sickness, cures all sickness, all health issues. It's kind of we call it the wonder drug. I don't know what it is, but that's what it is. It's the only thing it can't fix is you not taking it, right? In order for the effects of the drug to work, you've actually got to take it. You've actually got to trust the drug, and that's what Jesus is saying. Blasphemy of the spirit is rejecting what the Spirit says about Jesus. It's saying, He is not God the Son. He is not the one who would come and die for me. If you reject Him, you reject the only means of forgiveness. To blaspheme the Spirit is to call the Spirit of God a liar about who Jesus is, about who He is pointing Jesus out to be. Jesus couldn't be any stronger. If If you're here today... And you've been living in the periphery of religion and church. But you've refused to put your trust in Jesus. Refused to recognize him as king. Maybe you think he's a good person. Maybe you think he's he's got good morals for us to follow. Maybe you think, look, I just enjoy the community of church. I need to say with the, the utmost respect and gentleness. If you continue to view him as someone other than God the Son, the only way you can be saved then it is impossible for you to have eternal life. It is impossible for your sins to be dealt with in Him. It is impossible for your rebellion to be dealt with and paid for. Because the only one who can deal with our sin, who's paid for it at the cross, is that one that we are rejecting. Friends, can I encourage you? Come to Jesus. See who the Scriptures point Him out to be. See who... Who Jesus says he is. And see the great freedom and joy in trusting him. Not kind of hanging around the edges with what he says here or don't like what he does there. No, recognize he is king and we are not. Recognize he is salvation. And we can find it nowhere else. If you do trust Jesus, it's worth thinking hard. It's worth Dwelling on how important it is to keep trusting him. Maybe you've grown up in a family that, that have always put Jesus at the center and life for you has been, yes, Jesus is king, but in a way he kind of moves out of that central place in your life. You feel like it's, it's hard. You feel tired. Is it worth it? You know, I want to walk away. I look at other things that are going on for others in the world and it seems good. Hear the warning for you as well. Apart from Jesus, there is no forgiveness. Do not walk away from him. Do not minimize who he says he is. Do not minimize his role in your life. Trust him as king overall. Oh, you hear all this, what Matthew's showing us about the person of Jesus. And you can think, sure, I can see Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament promises. But it's pretty easy to miss, isn't it? Is it really fair? Is it really fair that people are still held to account for rejecting Jesus if it's the only way? Is that really okay? I mean, shouldn't he give us a sign or make himself clear or or do something so I might know more clearly? There's nothing new about that way of thinking. Look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. You can imagine why, right? We want want more. This is not enough. Give us a sign. They're prodding him like some sort of spiritual vending machine make me convinced that you're god do it again do it a different way but listen to what he says in verse 39 he answered them an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet jonah for as jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights Jesus says to call out to God, to say, you need to give me more, is evil and adulterous. It's to say that enough has not been given. It's to twist the facts of history. That's why it's, it's evil, because it's saying, oh, not enough has been seen. He's not done enough. He's not stepped into the world in this way. I, I can't really see there's enough here. What Jesus is saying is that is, that is suppressing the reality of the truth. It's evil. And it's adulterous because the reason that we do it is that we're tied to another God, namely ourselves. We put ourselves in the centre, not him. But then in one stunning statement, he gives with clarity something that is unmissable. There is a sign, there is something clear, something that for generations to come, for millennia to come, people will speak of and know. And it's the sign of Jonah. Ever wondered why the book of Jonah is in the Bible, except for a cool story about a fish that vomits people? God's great sense of humor. Jonah's in the belly of the fish and he's saying this amazing prayer to God as if he really was sorry, and then the fish just spews him out of the beach as if to say, I've had enough of you. Who are you? Like, what is Jonah here for? Jesus tells us for one reason to point to him. Jesus says, like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, as good as dead, and then God brought him back to life. So I will go into the belly of the earth for three days and then come back to life, not just resuscitated, but resurrected to live forever, with death being defeated. Jesus here is talking about his death and resurrection. He's very clear where he's walking. He's showing who he is in these points he's saying, "I am walking to my death. For three days I will be dead, and then I will rise to live forever." And sometimes we get caught up on the three days and three nights. It wasn't three nights. The Jewish mindset kind of counts part of a day as a full day. So this is kind of normal for Jewish thinking. Um, so don't be like, ah, oh, didn't quite get there enough. He didn't pay enough. He wasn't there long enough because it wasn't three nights. No, Jesus is just saying for three days. And he's referencing the reality of his death in our place. The sign we need, the sign that rings throughout human history is the resurrection of Jesus. It's the Reality that humanity has a resurrection-shaped dent in it for its history. So we look back that Jesus rose from the dead and people served him and followed him as king of the universe, that he really rose. Paul says when he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians that people are still alive today who have seen the risen Jesus. Not today, today, but today when he wrote that letter. You could go and ask them. He, He talks about the historicity of this reality. Friends, how else do you account for how Christianity spread so quickly across the whole earth? How do you account for those who follow Jesus to willingly give up their lives, almost all of them dying, holding on to the reality that Jesus was God? The resurrection is the biggest pointer to all of us about who Jesus is. But it comes with a warning, verse 41. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is saying, I'm greater than Jonah. This was a resurrection that lasted forever. I'm greater than Solomon because he has all the wisdom of the earth. He's the one who who is the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm greater than David. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than the sacrificial system. I'm greater than the, the, the cure for all of sickness because I bring in the kingdom of God and offer you life forever. Jesus comes and speaks clearly and truthfully. With him, there is no compromise. So the question for us is, how will we approach him? Will we say, no, we both need to meet in the middle? Or we recognize who Jesus is and let him be the Lord of our lives? Look what he says in verse 30. Anyone who is not with me is against me. And anyone who does not gather with me scatters. What he's saying is you're either with me or you're against me. There's there's no middle ground when it comes to Jesus. You either accept him for who he is or you're against him. You don't try and get him to compromise and meet in the middle. You don't try and form him into a picture of your imagination. You're either with him or against him. You are either with God or you're satanic. During the First World War, Switzerland found itself stuck in the middle, literally and geographically, of the two superpowers of the time. You had Germany and Austria and Hungary on the one side and the Allied powers of France and Italy on the other. But Switzerland stayed strong. They sat in the middle and they didn't side with either of the two sides. They remained neutral throughout the whole war. What Jesus is saying, with me, there's no Switzerland. There is no neutral in the middle. You can't sit there and say, I'm not against you, but I'm not really for you. Jesus demands us to come to him and say, am I going to bow the knee to you or am I going to bow the knee to my life? When you recognize who he is, his compassion, his love, his willingness to die in our place and rise again. When you look in the mirror and see the way that we use our own religiosity to hide true recognition of who Jesus is, don't you want to treat him as the Savior and the King of your life? Let me ask you today, where are you tempted to frame Jesus as someone different from who the Bible says he is? Is it maybe the Jesus that will come and make your life better? The, the make your life better Jesus. I'll, I'll follow Jesus because he'll make it a bit more bearable. He'll get me a bit more health or wealth or prosperity. Is it perhaps a view of Jesus that's the, you know, I tick my theological box as Jesus. I know who he is, that he is God, and I know he said some amazing things. I understand the amazing literature that's there in the scriptures, and you have a love for religion But you don't recognize him as he is or you're not treating him as as the king and ruler of your life or perhaps the oh look i think it's a great story i love the community jesus but he's not going to be the ruler well friends if the view of jesus you have is any of those then he also will not be your savior he's not come to compromise He's come to show His incredible love and mercy and forgiveness and life, that He would die in our place and rise again so He might be our Savior and our King. So let me ask you today, are you for Him or are you against Him? That and that alone will determine your identity and your eternity. Come and trust Jesus for who He is. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful that despite who we are, despite the way we act, you show us incredible love in your Son. That Jesus stepped into our world, that he died in our place, that you've offered us forgiveness, that we can stand forgiven before you. Father, help us to see the incredible love and mercy of Jesus. Show us where we push Jesus to the side of our lives, where we... We put religiosity and rules or maybe just plain rejection of him at the center and help us to be people who are so captivated, so grasped by him that we would live with him as our king and enjoy the reality of him being our savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.